My name is Beth Guckenberger. Good morning and Merry Christmas to you all. It's my joy to be here with you and to continue in on this series that Chad's been working on a little bit about what if Jesus was never born. And I know he's been talking on subjects about science and the environment and education. And he's invited me this morning to talk about what, what kind of impact did Jesus' birth have on human rights and the family and specifically on adoption. Certainly his birth has been leading his children to do crazy things in this area ever since. It was a number of years ago I began to speak on something called the K-Love Cruise. If you've ever listened to that radio station here in Cincinnati, they have an annual cruise ship where they invite listeners from across the world to come and join for a few days. And they have various artists that come and sing. And I was just the speaker and here was my job. At night, I had 10 minutes between when the artists were changing sets to tell them a little bit about orphans and human rights and vulnerable children and the ways that we can form our families. And then I was inviting them to come the next day to a much longer seminar where I would talk in more in depth about that topic. The problem was the next day I was also competing with like swimming with the dolphins and, you know, salsa dancing on the promenade deck. So at night I would have the audience of thousands and the next day I'd maybe have a dozen people come to my workshop. And so after a couple of years, I remember telling my husband, I'm not sure this is, probably, this is a good use of my time. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then a, a year or two after I finished my run with the Caleb Cruise, I um, got a call from a family here in Cincinnati, really neat family, who spend part of their time advocating for the adoption of medically fragile children. Just trying to help find families and help them feel equipped to take on the challenges that some of these children represent. And she called me and said, um, hey, I'm looking, I've been trying and trying to get these two Chinese sisters, they're aged like 10 and 12, they're HIV positive, been trying to find a family for them. Would you be willing to help me? Would you put their picture and a little bit of their story on your social media platforms? I'm not sure I would do that anymore. I mean, that's not necessarily a great thing for child protection, but I did it. I said yes, and I put their picture on my social media, and I told a little bit about their story. And I said, if you're interested in understanding more about what it would mean to adopt these two girls into your family, here's the information of the adoption agency. I didn't want to be in the middle of that. I just was. And I can remember I said something about there's a verse in Psalms that says that we should that God puts the lonely in families, and I put that in that message. And underneath that. That post, I got lots of like praying hands and heart emojis, and, but I didn't really know if anything happened. And then a year and a half later, I got a letter in our back-to-back -back ministries office. If I haven't met you yet, that's my day job. I work for an organization that serves orphaned and vulnerable children around the world, and we have an office here in Cincinnati, and I got a letter there from a family that had attended one of my workshops on the Caleb Cruise that I didn't really remember them, but they had continued to follow me on, on Facebook after that cruise and they saw my post about these two little girls who were available for adoption, and they did all the work that's required inside and outside in order to bring them home. And it was a picture of those little girls in their California home enjoying their very first American ice cream cone. And, uh, and, and now those girls are about ready to graduate from high school, and I just heard they have a new Chinese brother in their family as well. But when I think about the kinds of things that God asks his kids to do and all the ways in which... He's prompting and encouraging and indwelling us in the middle of stories that just aren't normal. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, that's not natural to want to do that. But God is, he's, he's moving on us 
opening doors. He's asked his kids to do some pretty amazing things. And for our discussion today, amongst the areas of human rights, we're going to talk specifically about adoption and orphans. Certainly, adoption existed before Jesus was ever born. The most famous adoptee in the Old Testament probably is a Jewish baby named Moses who was put in a basket put down the Nile River and eventually adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. He would go on to lead God's kids out of slavery in that time frame. But through Jesus' life and his adoption by Joseph, as Drew was referencing in that video, and his teaching on how to teach people who aren't your family, treat them as if they are your family, everything about his life turned all of this discussion upside down. His birth came in a way and in a manner, he's God. He could have been born at any time to any people in any place, anywhere in the world. He could have, he chose exactly what he wanted because his choice is put on display from the very beginning that he has a different way of thinking, an upside down kind of way of thinking. And he's been inviting us to model that way ever since. Jesus' birth really, as we've been talking about, and you'll continue to talk about the rest of the month, it's a tale of two kingdoms. There was already someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews. His name was Herod. He had Roman support, married into the faith, fabulously wealthy, unbelievable engineer, lots and lots of power. He built himself his own mountain called the Herodium. He named it after himself, stuck a palace on the top of it in case you were walking around and ever were curious, where does the king really live? Oh, he lives on the top of his own mountain in his own palace. Just a few miles away, there would be another baby who everyone would call the new king of the Jews, this baby Jesus. He was born to a poor family, highly rejected, from rural Nazareth. In the book of John, they would quote people as having said, does anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Just a few miles away in the shadow of this mountain. His birth would be announced by the marginalized of society, not the fanciest people, but the least fanciest of people, those shepherds. And from the very beginning, he was, he was making us a point. His very entry into the world was introducing us to this new kind of upside-down way of thinking. It's a kingdom that doesn't really make sense to us because it's, it's from another kind of place. It's not from this place where our natural senses happen. The baby would grow up in his teaching, in his teaching ministry, Jesus would continue with all this other way kind of acting and thinking and leading for us. He would te- teach people that the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers. And Matthew 5 would say, those kinds of people will be called the children of God. <laughs> he would tell us things like we should be turning our other cheek when someone hurts us. And when someone wants our shirt, not only do we give it to them, we give them the coat that goes with it. He would teach things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. These are, and all of these principles and ideas as he's turning the things that feel normal and natural upside down for us. He's impacting this area of human rights. And human rights is just the love of people. And he's teaching us how to love people, these ideas, even though they're uncomfortable, they're for our good. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he would send out his disciples, his kids, and say, go out into the world and tell them all the things I've been telling you. That's, That's your job. Just tell them what it is I've been telling you, this other way kind of kingdom living. Chad and I had a chance to travel with a group of people Um, to Israel and then to follow the spread of the early church a number of years ago. And honestly, until that trip, and I've I've been in church a long time, I had no idea. I kind of thought that when 
Jesus sent out his disciples into the world to tell people about him, that they like got to go places where nobody knew about God and say, hey, guess what? Like we saw someone, he fed 5,000 people and he walked on water and he like raised from the dead and he healed people that were sick. And then everybody would be like, wow, how do I find out about it? And the disciples would be, the services are at 9 and 11, like come. <laughs> but that's not what happened. They actually went to places where people had gods they loved. And they had stories about those gods that they loved, about them feeding people and healing people and doing things that seemed unbelievable. And Jesus knew that they were going to face that. So he prepared him, telling them, hey, when you go out and tell people about me, the way that they're going to know that this kind of story, this kind of kingdom is completely different from what they experienced is going to be by the way that you love them. That's what's going to make us unique. One example of a place we visited was a town called Ephesus. Man, we could spend a lot of time this morning talking about the ways in which Ephesus had organized itself. We would recognize it today. People in power had power. People who had money had power. And it was hard to move around in that system. And there were ways that they rewarded people in power in ways in which they could keep their power and increase their power. And there were ways in which people who never were born with any power at all we're continuing to experience defeat. And as the disciples come into that environment, this crazy New York City-esque kind of environment with the instructions to love people radically, that's exactly what I can report to you the early church of, of Ephesus did. In fact, when the apostle Paul would write a letter back to that community, he would use lots of words in that letter referencing how good they were at loving. He would say things like, I've heard about the love you have for all the saints. I've heard that you've been speaking the truth in love. I implore you, walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself. He was encouraging them to do things like love strangers, people wildly different than them. And they began these little house churches, these small invitational communities where they first invite a person. And then that person would invite their family. And this began to lead inside of those little houses, these little house churches, this radical form of equality without any regard to things like social rank or ethnicity or gender or race. And it was unbelievably attractive and astounding to that Hellenistic world. And among some of the practices that were going on in Ephesus, I want to, um, I want to expound a little bit on what Drew said on that video. One of those practices was something called exposure. So what would happen, it was common actually for about 300 years into this millennium, uh, up to 300 AD, what happened was the way that your social rank was determined was basically your per capita net worth. So a family would take their total assets, divide it by the amount of people in their family, and that number, that per capita net worth, would determine their social rank. So if you had a baby that was the wrong gender or was frail, or frankly, by dividing your wealth by one more head, you were going to lower your social rank. Heads of households would decide they don't want that baby anymore. And they were legally able to dispose of that child in a practice called exposure. They would take that baby and, and throw it outside of the city gates. And Tertullian, who was a church father, wrote around 178 AD of the practice that Christians would go out to those gates and they would rescue those children. And you can see in the graves of the Roman catacombs, they would say like so-and-so, the adopted son of so-and-so. Because that early church was going out to those gates and picking up those babies that other families didn't want and bringing them in to their own houses and involving them in their own families. 
And this was radical. And only because they had begun to incorporate the teachings of Jesus in their families. While Christians were picking up babies to adopt them into their household, slave traders were going through those same babies looking for what might be useful to them. In fact, we have writings from Ephesian physicians who would talk about how to listen for the certain kind of robustness of a cry of a child or how to measure the femur in order to determine if this child would grow up to be a healthy working slave for you. Makes me understand why Paul would later write to them in his letter ideas around adoption and tell them that you, you, God has predestined you to be adopted at his son, as his son, this upside down way of thinking. What? what like, this idea that stranger, that you would take strangers, kids that didn't come from you into your family, not so that they would work for you, but we all know as parents, if they come in as our kids, we end up working for them, right? I mean, like, that's how this works. Jesus' birth, it, it changed everything about that. And this church was known for love, rescuing babies, welcoming slaves, feeding hungry people, loving in practical ways. It's literally no wonder that it grew. Jesus' kingdom and this upside-down way of teaching and thinking has changed the way that I formed my family. My husband Todd and I have 11 children. This is, um, this is not how I was raised. <laughs> this is not something I ever set out to do. This was just encountering God's thinking and him and hearing his invitation for us to set to be in the middle of stories that I didn't understand and I was utterly out of control. Our first adoption was 25 years ago. Uh, I had it was a funny little time in our life. Um, I just lost my father. He got sick at age 51 to a cancer that took his life and when when he was sick, I just asked God to heal him in all the ways I know my Bible teaches me to do, and God chose not to, and took him home to heaven, and it was very confusing to me, and I don't want to pretend otherwise. It was confusing to me in the aftermath why something like that hard would happen to someone who seemed so faithful to me. And after my father's death, my husband and I made the decision to move as missionaries to another country. So 1997, we took one year of a previously saved um, savings account, uh, teacher salary, and we moved to Mexico. And during that first year we lived there as missionaries, we got pregnant with our first child. And there's a lot of funny stories about giving birth in a country where you don't speak the language. But it all, it all, it, it all, it all works out in the end. And during that first year, while my belly was growing with my daughter, I was still watering an adoption seed that had been planted in my heart. I used to tell my husband a long time before I loved you, I knew that I wanted to have a baby adopted in my family. God had, had placed that desire in my heart at a young age. And so while we were there living among orphanages, I was like, my gosh, we found a set of sisters that I thought for sure were going to come home and be my daughters. And if you know anyone who's done anything around international adoption, there is a lot of paperwork to do. So we began the arduous process of getting that paperwork together to bring these two little sisters home who we thought would be good big sisters to the baby girl that was growing in my belly. But that process got disrupted in the middle of it, as they sometimes do. And I eventually gave birth to my daughter there. And the money that we had saved to move as missionaries it had run out. It was time for us to come back here to Cincinnati and to uh, organize ourselves and raise some support and hopefully go back. My husband became an administrator over at Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy. And he was a pretty young administrator. He was working really hard to make sure everybody knew that he could do that job. 
And we had meanwhile talked some friends of ours into trading us places, and they moved into the rental house that we had just vacated in Mexico. And they, their responsibility was to keep the ministry going until we could come back and join them, probably what would be one school year we had hoped. And the first day of school, the phone rang, and it was my friends in Mexico, and they called me. And as soon as I picked up the phone, I knew it was an emergency. It was, there was all kinds of screaming going on in the background. And I, I, they told me this little girl had been hit by a car, and they'd just gotten there. They didn't even know what to do or what to say. And I started telling them all the instructions, like, go to this hospital, and, like, here's all the things you do. And in the height of that emergency, I could answer all their questions except for one. I couldn't figure out how to get them the money they were going to need that day. Today, I know all about international wire transfers, but at that point, I didn't know. And so I just looked at my watch, and I looked over at my newborn baby, and I thought, my gosh, Todd is so busy at work today. I mean, this is the first day of school. He does not want to be bothered with this. So I said, hey, you know what? I'm catching the noon flight out of Cincinnati to Mexico. I'll be there by dinner. I'll bring money with me. Don't worry about it. And uh, they were happy just to have that problem solved. So we hung up the phone, and I thought, I'm not even going to call him, right? He's so busy today. So... <laughs> I just left him a note on the kitchen table like, hey, random Mexico with Emma for the weekend. I took all the rest of the money. Have a great first week of school. And uh, I, got, I went straight to the hospital. I'm happy to report that Ruth totally recovered from her injuries, that little girl. And then I eventually landed that night in our rental house where my friends were living. And almost as soon as I walked in the door, the phone rang. We all thought it was him, you know whatever he was going to say to me on the phone. We all thought that was about to happen. It wasn't. In fact, it was someone who was looking for me, and I shouldn't have been there that night. In fact, if my friends had answered the phone, they didn't have enough language skills to talk to him. And I got on the phone, and it was an attorney who was just networking, looking for a family, an American family that was paperwork ready to adopt a baby boy who had been transferred from one Mexican state into another, and his international adoption eligibility had about 72 hours left. And they said, would you be willing to fly to another state I'd never been to at the bottom of the country to stand in court tomorrow at noon for the adoption of this baby boy who was ironically the same age as my daughter? And I thought to myself in the middle of the call, wow, this phone call home is getting more interesting by the minute, right? <laughs> but God gave me a gift that we talk about a lot this time of year. It's called the peace that passes understanding. It's this thing that like when something doesn't make sense, he gives you this fingerprint that says, this is my kind of kingdom. This is upside down kind of thinking. This is not the way that feels natural or right to you, but I'm in the middle of it and here's my peace to prove it. And as I felt his peace, I knew that that was what God was asking us to do. So I took all these instructions down on how to get to the Veracruz courthouse the next day and then I called home. That conversation is not totally appropriate for a Sunday morning on a church stage. <laughs> But at the end of that conversation, we did have a prayer, and the Lord gifted to my husband the same kind of peace he had gifted to me. And the next day, we stood in court and brought home our baby boy. And I had only been a mom for a few months, and so I wasn't like I was that much of an expert, but I knew within an hour there was something really physically wrong with him. His legs were scissored, and I couldn't get him open. And his arms were frozen in this weird position, and I couldn't straighten him to clean him. And his belly was bloated because he was from a rainforest, and he had a growth in his mouth, and he couldn't eat very well. And he had this fungus growing up his body. And we were looking at him, this, like, cross-legged, frozen-armed, fungus-covered, bloated belly, brown baby. And we're like, oh, my gosh, he's so cute, right? <laughs> he's not that cute. <laughs> Eventually, we were able to get him back here to the United States where he was treated at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, fabulous medical facility, and there eventually I sat in the office of a neurologist. And, and my son Evan and my daughter Emma were in a double stroller. They functioned like twins, although they obviously weren't. And this neurologist said to me, there are four degrees of cerebral palsy. 
mild, moderate, severe, and profound, and your son has severe cerebral palsy, and he's not going to walk, and he's not going to talk, and I don't think he'll ever live independently. And the faster you get your head wrapped around that, the better for that baby it's going to be. And this man had no idea what he was doing, but he was triggering some big feelings I had unresolved about my father's death. That's what can happen to grief sometimes. It can come up when we're re-triggered by disappointment and discouragement and resentment and fear. And I thought, oh, I'm not even going to pray for this baby. I mean, I know God doesn't heal. I asked him in all the ways I asked, I know how to. And we put all of our plans to go back onto Mexico on hold. And I just dove into all the world of medical uh, facilities and, and practices and therapies. And we went to therapy every day of some sort. 18 months later, Evan was not meeting any of his milestones. He wasn't sitting up or crawling or all the things that he should be doing at that age. And I had a woman come from, we were living in Warren County at the time, came to our house from the county in an early intervention program. And her job was to teach me some of the ways in which I might be able to use my environment in order to stimulate his movement and growth. And uh, she saw him, his muscles were hypertonic, which means they were really tight, very painful to move. And so my daughter would, who was um, developing normally, would go over and take his toy out of his hand because she was like one and a half and walk away and he would start crying. And so I'd go get the toy and rearrange his body. And, like the, and this, this physical therapist watched that happen. And she said to me, you know what, Beth, it looks like to me? It looks to me like you're rescuing him too much. And I said, well, you can get out of my house. <laughs> Today she's my friend, but she was not my friend that day. And uh, I, I mean, I said, rescue, are you kidding me? All we ever do is dangle Jerry's in front of this kid and, and take him to therapies. And I'm like, he's in pain. And when he makes eye contact with me, I'm his mother. I'm going to respond to that. I'm not going to let him be in pain. And I, I kicked her out. And Evan started crying. And I joined him. And I, I was crying first maybe about him. And then eventually I was crying about Mexico. I thought we were moving back to Mexico as missionaries. And then I thought, like, what, I was crying about my dad. And I, I was having a moment there. And I left the room to go get a Kleenex. And I can leave him alone because he can't go anywhere. But when I came back in the room, he had moved. And I, don't know, I didn't know how he had moved. I didn't see that first movement. But he was not in the same place I left him. And so I, like, forgot about what I was crying about. And I got in front of him. I'm like, buddy, you're moving. Look at you. And I start to kind of back up, and it wasn't really that pretty, but he was kind of army crawling. In a way, he'd never moved like that before. So I left the room again, and I, used to, I went to get my phone. Remember, we used to have them attached to the walls before? And uh, I wanted to call someone to come over and look and see what was happening. So I went and left to get the phone. When I came back, he was all the way across the room. He was stuck up against our couch that had like a fabric skirt on it. And he put his fists on that fabric skirt, and it wasn't really pretty but he, he rocked himself up to a stand. And when he stood up, all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because I realized I was watching something from another kind of kingdom. This was not natural. This isn't how the, the world I know functions. And then he held on to that couch and he did what physical therapists call cruising. He held on to it, moved himself across the length of it. He got to the end and he pivoted and walked across into my arms. And in that moment, I have some memory of it. I remember scooping up both the children and throwing them in a car seat, probably never buckled it, drove a hundred miles an hour to that Christian school. Todd's office faced the front of the building, so he saw me coming around that circle drive like something was on fire. And as I took out one of the bushes, he came running out to find out what happened. <laughs> and I didn't have any words for it yet. At that point, I didn't have any words. I just set Evan on the ground 
And he kind of walked over to his dad and we had this moment in the lobby of CHCA where we were talking about wedding aisles and soccer fields and it was this crazy moment that would lead to us almost immediately returning to Mexico as missionaries where we would live then for the next 15 years. But Evan never again showed any signs of cerebral palsy. In fact, when he was a four-year-old in Mexico, we played a bunch of soccer, so we put him on a soccer team. And I can remember him running down the field and kicking a goal, and I'm on the sidelines sobbing that God would display his kingdom for my benefit in that way. And then he was like in like fourth grade, and he'd be like, hey, you can't come to my games if you're going to cry every time I score, you know. <laughs> and then uh, when he was 16 years old, we moved back to the United States, and here in Cincinnati, we play a bunch of football. So he learned how to play football for his local high school, and I remember the first time he caught a touchdown pass as a wide receiver, and I was up so far away in the stands, happy he couldn't see me because I was up there crying because it still takes my breath away what God chose to do. He went on to play football for Taylor University. I brought a picture of him and his sister for you to see. And while he was a student at Taylor, I had a chance to speak to his student body. And I was telling them the story of his healing. And all of a sudden, I had him, when I said he walked, I had him come on stage with me. And the students put together that the story I was telling was about a, someone that they recognized from their campus life. And college students do what they do. They started roaring at us, like cheering and roaring. And he's giant. He's much bigger than I am. And he's he just like kind of hanging on to me while I'm talking. And I stopped them all. And I said, hey, listen, the reason I tell you something wildly personal about my family is because I want you to know that the same girl prayed to the same God about two people that I loved. And one of those stories turned out nothing like I wanted it to. And the other story turned out way better than I even asked him for. And at the end of the day, what God, how God grew me up in this kingdom kind of thinking is he taught me that he is sovereign. And if he's writing a story, we can trust him. It's good. He sees things that we can't see. That's why he leads and, and, and indwells and gives peace to and encourages and provides for. He sees all the things that are coming. He would write in the book of Romans, Paul would write, for as many are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We, we don't receive the spirit of bondage to fear. Instead, we get this spirit of adoption where we can cry out to him as he is our father and we are his kids. We are the children of God. Today, Jesus is being born in his kingdom teaching. It's changed everything. There are a billion people on this planet who follow his teaching. And these people are going into dark places and they're loving strangers and they're feeding people and they're fighting injustice and they're inviting people into their families and they're showing up. A couple of weeks ago, I spent all afternoon at the United Nations in New York City, and I was talking to them about trauma training that we have at Back to Back and how we need to figure out ways to partner to disseminate this content to the people around the world who most need it, who have experienced trauma in some pretty profound ways. And someone challenged me, how do you think we're going to get this all the way around the world to the 7 billion people on the planet? And I said to them with all the confidence in the world, the church is the free foot soldier. We actually want to go into hard places. We actually are willing to be in difficult relationships. We actually want to break bread with people who are of different ethnicities and races and genders and classes and all the things. We've been doing this since he left us to do this. This is what the church does. 
And speaking of God's kids going around and doing things in hard places, I want to share a video of you, Horizon, doing this very thing. said that whoever hears his words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Jesus uses a building metaphor when he speaks about the church because churches are always about building, building friendships, building faith, building community. Sometimes it's about building into people's lives by putting his words about loving other people into practice. Part of why we create these type of experiences is so we can take the love of God and put it into practice by building buildings and soccer fields and community centers that change people's lives and grow their faith as well. The first project we were involved in here at Back to Back Cancun was we had the fortunate timing of putting in the soccer field. You know, the soccer field at the time, you really didn't know what you were doing. You're putting in a soccer field, but when you come back and you, you, you see what that soccer field means to the community, you're actually building just hope and love and just what it means to that community is unbelievable. Since the soccer field has been built, um, what a true blessing is, is coming back and seeing what other teams have done as a collaborative unit, coming down and adding things that are very important like craft sections, sewing rooms, a dentist office, a palapa, a gathering area, an outdoor pizza oven where people can gather. Um, it's just a true community is being formed. So on Sunday we were paired with uh, individuals and I was uh, picked a guy named Kevin on the bus. Uh, and Kevin uh, was uh, very closed, you know, very, uh, um, you know, didn't want to make eye contact uh, and all of that. Uh, and I thought, here's, a, here's an opportunity for me to kind of get involved. Throughout the day, um, he was just everywhere, everywhere but my side. So he didn't want really to, to really make a connection with me. Um, and I, I found myself uh, thinking, this is, this is the kid that needs the most help. When you're doing really hard work and you're putting concrete on a roof or you're building a chicken coop like we did yesterday and you see the instant result of the work, but then you go back and you think about Kevin, you realize that that's not an instantaneous turnaround uh, and you've got to really slowly step into an, an opening up. Uh, and those steps um, take time. I'm very anxious to, to come back and, and see that growth in Kevin. Uh, and so hopefully Kevin um, will continue uh, kind of coming to back to back and um, experience and playing like a kid and, and really opening up. Uh, and I think that's just going to give him uh, what he needs. The first time I came down here, um, it was more of a personal um, challenge. Uh, I'd never been on any kind of mission trip uh, uh, or anything like that before. It was something that I wanted to experience. Um, and in my mind, I figured, well, I was going to go down there and somehow make an impact. Um, what I quickly realized was that the impact was actually being made on me, um, and it gave me a different perspective. Um, and these, these people that I've had the privilege to meet and engage with have definitely um, changed the way I think about serving others. And the service here uh, becomes addicting. Year over year, we just cannot wait to get back down here. We've been down here as a family. This is my second men's trip. Um, it's, it's something that we look forward to, and I cannot wait to get down here every year. 
Each person from our church who came down here and built a community center, built a soccer field, were putting Jesus' words into practice when he said, go and love other people. What's amazing is people give up vacations to come down here to love on others, but what they discover is God builds into their faith. When you give to other people, it develops a new type of love in you. It's a God type of love, the kind of love that gives to give, it doesn't give to get. Yeah, I'm so excited that Back to Back in Horizon has had a relationship for over 20 years, basically. And we all took a break on those kinds of global serving trips during the uh, pandemic. But in 2023, Horizon will be having some more opportunities. If that's something you or someone in your family or someone you know you think might be interested on going to one of those global serving trips, John Kirby is the right person for you to talk to. And he can give you more information about what opportunities are coming up um, in that regard. Another simple way that you can get involved in what God is doing through Back to Back and going to the people that are missing, loving people who are marginalized, is there's a giving tree out there in the um, atrium. And there are ornaments that are hanging off of that tree. And I, I just want to say for a minute, state the obvious, that every one of those ornaments represents a real person behind it who has a need in this city that you might have an opportunity and a way to, to meet. So Go out there and take a look at those and think about ways in which you and your family might be able to meet the need of a vulnerable person here in this city. If you're watching us online, you can go to the church's website, backslash tree, and get that same kind of information. Those are just some easy, simple steps you can take towards practicing this kind of other way of living, this upside-down kind of kingdom. I certainly want to thank you for being a church that is known for the way that you love people both here in Cincinnati and around the world. This is a season when we're thinking about generosity. We're thinking about being generous in spirit. We're thinking about who's on our list and making our lists and checking them twice. But I just want to say probably the most profound gift you could give someone this season is your presence. We know from good science that it's, it's healing to someone to, have, to be heard by someone who's giving you their full attention and is without judgment. In fact, the brain cannot discern the difference. It registers the same feeling between when you're being listened to and when you're being loved and loved and listened to are simultaneous. So when you think about this month, all the ways in which you can be generous with the people in your house and in your neighborhood and in your workplace and in your extended family, a good, simple, other kind of kingdom way of living is to listen to them. We're a, we're a culture right now that loves to talk. What would it look like for us to demonstrate what it sounds like to listen and to be present for someone? I want to share with you the story of one of my colleagues, Michael Sickles, who's working in the back-to-back -back Cincinnati site. He's going to share with you what it looked like for him to demonstrate another way for a student who desperately needed it. Hello, my name is Michael Sickles. I am the Youth Programs Development Manager at the Cincinnati site. Um, so many opportunities that God has shown up, but there's one situation uh, when I was coaching a young man, and I remember we were going to the summer, he had just turned 18, and a conversation we had, he, he, was, he turned to me and said, I don't belong, men in my life don't stay, men in my life aren't healthy, and men aren't present. And so I remember a couple weeks after that, I'm, I'm sitting in my house, I'm just really thinking about that conversation, and my phone rings, and I look at the phone, and I don't recognize the number, so I don't answer it. And about 10 minutes later, the phone rings again. It's the same number. So I'm like, okay, it's two times. So I answer the, answer the phone, and it's this young man. He says, Mr. Mike. He says, I'm in jail. I'm like, okay, how are you holding up? What do you need, and what can I do? And so I schedule a time to go visit him. 
I visit with them and I say, hey, when you get out of here, we're going to get together, think about next steps and we're going to move forward. So a couple weeks go by, he's out. Again, I'm sitting at home just really thinking about this story and my phone rings again. I look at the phone. Now this time I recognize the number, so I answer it. And I'm like, hello, and it's this young man again. He says, Mr. Mike, I don't know what happened, but I'm back in jail again. And I'm like, okay. I say, how are you holding up? What do you need? And what can I do? So I schedule another time to go visit him. Um, and, and we talk, and again, I say, hey, we'll revisit the plan when you get out. We'll figure out next steps, and we'll go from there. So this time I got an opportunity to, to get him when he gets out. I was able to take him to his family's house, and I said, hey, tomorrow's a new day, and we're going to figure this out. So I drop him off, and I go home. I'm getting settled, and again, my phone rings. I look at it, it's the same number, and I'm, I'm puzzled. And so I answer the phone, it's this young man that I coach, and he says, I'm here again. And in that moment, I remembered scheduling a time to go see him. And again, he's 18, so he's in the adult jail system. So I go in there, and he's these big columns, and these big bays, and there's this glass, plexiglass, and there's this old school pay phone that I have to talk through. And I remember waiting for him to come in. I said, God, there's got to be a different way. He walks in, has his head down, and silence. He's not looking at me. And out of nowhere, he just says, Mr. Mike, why do you keep showing up? And I said, because you belong. And this is what love looks like. And in that moment, I can hear him weeping on the phone. And he looks up at me and says, will you pray with me? And we're in the jail praying. And from that moment, he never went back to jail again. And he graduated high school, got his own apartment, still navigating life. But it's just amazing to see how God just continues to show up in multiple ways when we're just faithful to him and, and from the prayers and support of everybody. So thank you. Hmm. We've got to keep showing up. We've got, to, we've got to give the gift of our presence. That's how we put on display this other kind of way. That's how Jesus' birth ends up making a difference in the ways that we treat other people. Not, not our natural way, but this other supernatural kind of way where we first will be last and the last will be first. And we're peacemakers and pure in heart. And we stick around when it's easier to go away. May we be a church known for that kind of kingdom living. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful that you first showed up. That's why we can show up. That you first heard us. This is the only reason we can listen. That you, you demonstrate the kind of love that you now ask us to put on display. May we learn more about you so that we can act more like you. That's what the world needs. More of us to look more like you. And so, Jesus, we just ask that you would give us the courage to do that during the rest of this season. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.